0: Welcome back to cast everyone. Frank here behind the mic. Aaron is out of town. He is up on a TV show, Hunt Wars, hunting with South Cox, and uh, Scotty from Topo, Texas. Um, so I got David here on the mic with me. We have a very special guest, a mule deer giant killer. We have the one and only James Yates. What's up, James?
1: Hey, guys. How you doing?
0: Good, man. Good. It's early. It's bright and early here. It's not even bright yet. It's still dark out uh, Monday <laughs> dark morning. Thing.
1: Yeah. Very dark.
0: So, uh, man, how you doing? We, uh, I've been following along on your, on your social media and your, uh, Instagram stuff and looks like you had a a pretty awesome hunt here for the, the late extended portion of, of, uh, archery in Utah.
1: Yeah, it was miraculous to be totally honest. Um, hunted, uh, all year, multiple years for a specific gear and he was pretty reclusive and finally got a chance several times at him at the rut, uh, during the rut and, uh, was ultimately ultimately able to get an arrow in him with like 30 minutes of light left on the very last day. So uh, talk about buzzer beater buzzer beater finish for me.
2: <laughs> no doubt. Uh, how many how many days did you put into this deer uh, just this season?
1: Uh, this season I started. So I thought the deer was dead in 2018. Didn't see him glassing. Didn't see him on any of the cameras that normally picked him up. So I thought he was dead. Um, but in the spring of this year i was up checking late season trail cameras with my son that i'd set the year before and and found him and that was that was june um he was still transitioning so come uh, come july when i first saw him through the glass and from july 8th to november 30th it was 47 days wow that i put in on the mountain
0: that's a lot of time
1: yeah a ton of time
0: Man, that's insane um, talk about, uh, talk about what your strategy is for your trail cams. Do you, are you setting up, uh, mineral licks or you kind of just trying to get them when they're transitioning between bedding areas and feeding areas or kind of what's your strategy or is it a, a combination of a bunch of things?
1: Combination of a bunch of things in Utah, it, it is legal to use, uh, attractants, um, like, uh, like mineral licks, uh, buck jam, uh, deer king. I, I use a lot of, um, just to save money, because I don't know if it really makes a difference. I, I use water softener salt, uh, and that seems to be pretty productive. Um, and then I, I do typically like to look for trails. Uh, bedding areas seem to produce more daytime photos and, you know, active trails, kind of like what you said between feeding and, and bedding areas. Feeding areas, particularly for this deer, really only turned up night photos. Um, the other, difficult thing about this deer was he just held no pattern. Um, Everything that, you know, big mule deer killers would tell me that, you know, from years of experience that, and from my own experience, generally big mule deer like to keep a very tight home. This deer didn't. He had no pattern. I put up 31 trail cameras for him. Well, I don't own 31 cameras. I think I had 20 cameras and shuffling them between different spots. Um, My Com- basically compiled all the cameras that my friends and I had available. And, uh, between all of those cameras, shuffling them, I ended up putting up 30 different, 31 different camera sites, hauling salt to each of those. Um, so. Man, that's dedication. Yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah it could, especially considering the, just the distance and the, and, you know, that the this deer really wasn't living in an area with a lot of trails. It was pretty deep, and yeah, it was a lot of a lot of hauling. It probably hauled, oh, I don't know, five, six, seven hundred pounds of salt on the mountain. It, it a lot of a lot of work there.
2: Uh, just for the listeners, uh, if you guys don't know James Yates, his Instagram is Yates in the backcountry. So James, just uh, I, I've been dying to hear this. Uh, have you had him scored yet?
1: Um, not officially. There's um, a sixty-day drying period. Um, him being a, a non-typical with lots of inlines and webbing i've been a little, little hesitant to uh, to share the the scores that we've come up with but i'll safely say he's 230 class and he may be bigger damn that's
0: a huge bitch <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome man well, so uh with i've only hunted uh the front country of Utah once and David lived there for several years and hunted it quite a bit with the amount of pressure and uh, recreation that goes on in that specific portion of the state. Um, yeah, it definitely does make sense that that deer kind of did whatever didn't have, a, uh, I guess, a, a set routine just because I'm, I'm sure for a deer to get that big and that old, it it, it had to uh, had to move around a lot and adapt to the to the, uh, to its surrounding conditions and basically become a ghost for most of the year. You didn't see, you said you didn't see him all of 2018.
1: Yeah. And, lot, um, the other, the other, my, my, you know, a lot of people have been following along. Martin Chagnovich had spent a lot of time on this year as well. And I believe he told me he only got one or two trail camera videos of him all year that year as well. He thought he was dead most of the year as well. He does a lot more shed hunting than me. So he picked him up on the winter range quite a few times. Um, and I, I'll go out shed hunting a little bit, but not that doesn't strike my fancy as much as it does for him. I tend to use all my brownie points hunting. So, you anyway, know, I think you'd see him the spring of 2018, um, but towards the end he hadn't seen him either. But yeah, like you were saying, Frank, the the extended unit and David can speak to the truth of this. Um, you know, one thing that's kind of funny about a lot of hunters—not funny because it makes sense—is people tend to keep you know, the areas they hunt pretty tight-lipped. But then all of a sudden you get to, you know, Wasatch Front Hunters, and they're, they're not very necessarily tight-lipped about their unit. They're certainly tight-lipped about the spots they're hunting. You know, you see a lot of people saying they hunt the front. Well, the reason for that is it already gets so much damn pressure that it really doesn't matter. I mean, I'm, I'm not kidding. That unit... The extended portion of the unit probably get 20 to 30,000 hunters uh, from September to November, and that's that's not a joke. Um, you know, it's right next to Salt Lake City. Tons of people. Anybody with a valid archery tag in the state can hunt it, and you will see so much frustration from so many hunters, including locals, including myself, probably including David. Uh, just hunter pressure. The animals are extremely fluky. They you know they're extremely jumpy. That's actually half the reason why I created that ADAC vinyl harness to be as quiet as it is, because I've I, the, the deer are just so jumpy. You need every edge you can get with uh, with noise and uh, the the pressure of the front, like you were saying, Frank. Kind of in order for a deer th- to grow this big and this old on this unit, he has to be reclusive. He's got to be in an area that that's thick, that you know doesn't have a lot of trails. He's got to be in an area that that uh, has all the, the, the right feed uh, and um, you know what when all those things come together the unit does have genetics if if the deer are allowed to get old and with the popularity of of hunting seemingly increasing in our area um, or I should say maybe people are just getting more hardcore it seems that we are seeing fewer and fewer of the 190 plus deer that the, the front used to be known for and and now it's it's slim pickings on those bigger deer.
2: Yeah, and for anyone uh, wondering what the Wasatch Front's like, it's uh, I kind of cut my teeth uh, bow hunting on that on that unit. Um, I mean, I bow hunted since 1989, but I didn't really bow hunt until I moved to Utah. Um, you're basically looking at uh, August through November for for deer, for elk. December 15th, something like that. It's an archery only area. Uh, you're fighting against you know, dozens of other guys going after the same animal, you're hiking 10, 15 miles a day, sometimes in knee deep snow. Uh, it's not easy. It's, it's, it's really a, a tough hunt. Um, the odds are against you. And for this deer that you shot, I've been everywhere and I've never seen this deer. I have cameras everywhere. I had cameras everywhere when I lived in Utah. I had never seen this deer once. Um, I thought I had seen it before, but turns out it was not that deer. And, uh, Man, that's that's an area that I spent a lot of time in, uh, just just hiking and glassing and just like you know backpacking and things like that. And I had never seen him once. And for you to kill him like that uh, when you can't pattern him, that's that's pretty amazing.
1: Yeah, yeah. Fortunately, the the one saving grace was the rut. Um, so as, as Frank had mentioned, I didn't see him at all in 2018. But I I had I wasn't really looking for him too arduously because the you know, after several times and not seeing him on trail cameras, I thought he was dead. But 2000, um, 2020, this year, having gotten confirmation that he was still alive, because of those trail cameras that I checked with, that I checked with my son that spring, I, I basically, as soon as I saw that, I was like, this, this is the year. I'm, I'm dedicating the full season. I'm not going to kill an, uh, any other deer but him. I killed a good deer in 2000. Uh, 19, so I, was uh, coming off a, you know, a 190 type deer then, and I just, w- I just wanted to really kill this buck. And I first laid eyes on him with, um, you know, through my spotting scope on July 8th. Uh, that ended up being the only time that I saw him with my eyes until, uh, November 12th. Between July 8th and November 12th, I caught him on, uh, out of those 31 cameras, Six of him picked him up the most, and between, let's see, August... So I I actually thought I was going to kill the deer on the opener because I had him fairly consistent in a a section of pines on this little ridge the end of July through the first of August. I had him showing up a couple times a week. In fact, he showed up three days in a row, and I thought I was going to have him killed on the opener. But unfortunately, and, and it is what it is, you know, I, I say unfortunately, but the first of August with the hunt starting August 15th this year, you know, that's when a, when a lot of people started getting out and maybe putting up cameras of their own or setting up tree stands or, you know, just generally maybe maybe they're going up in to set up a camp or whatever. And it seemed like the pressure, the non-existent pressure before then and then all of a sudden people are getting in. You know, a few people were getting in, not a ton by any means, uh, getting in and stirring things up. I think that put him on lockdown and changed his pattern up. And come the second week in August, I didn't get him on camera until September 17th, and then from September 17th to November 12th, I was getting him every couple of weeks on on various cameras, and uh, that's that's what I just kept tabs on. Um, unfortunately, the unit. Uh, Dusty, a ton of pressure, so I was constantly worried about, once the extended came, that he, that, that he had been killed, so I was checking social media, I was, I was talking to my buddies who, you know, who, who were well known on the, or I guess, yeah, well known, well liked, and knew a lot of people from the front, and we just couldn't turn anybody up who had killed him, um, you know, and then I'd get a trail camera picture of him, kind of be put at ease, and, and then November 12th came, and that was the first time I'd seen him, um similar area, just a little bit more south facing and um a little lower in elevation. And uh right where I had, you know, the, the late season cameras pick him up on previous years and it was a a, a better hunt. I was seeing him more frequently, but uh, just to give you an idea, I'd wake up at you know, especially those early those early months when we were you know, when the sun's coming up at five you know, five thirty and uh, I was getting up at like 3 a.m. And I just knew I just knew that I wasn't going to see him. I'd get up and go glass, you know, August time frame, J- July, August, uh, some in September. I'd get up and get up at 3 a.m., hike my my brains out, get to the glassing spot by first light, various glassing spots. And I knew I just wasn't going to turn him up. And I, he, he was I can't remember if it was David or or Frank, when you said Ghost, that was actually one of his nicknames. Um, I knew of two other guys who were hunting this deer. I'd already mentioned Martin Chagnovich, and then um, one, another one of my close buddies, Luke, um, had also hunted this deer a previous year, 2017, and Luke had actually nicknamed this buck um, Ghost, just for that very reason that he uh, was seemingly impossible to pattern. And half the time you thought he was dead. Uh, Luke as well, thought he was dead in 2018.
2: So, mm. so you talked a little bit about like getting up early and stuff, but I've, I've heard stories about you doing, you know, midnight camera checks and things like that. Tell us, tell us some about,
0: <laughs> <laughs> about what
2: it, what it took for you to be successful and what other people could do, you know, because you're balancing like a full-time job. You've got, you know, a wife and kids and yeah, it's a lot of stuff.
1: Yeah. So just like, You know, just like so many of your listeners, probably, um, you know, I don't have any real distinct advantage. Um, I'm a chemical engineer. Um, I'm a consultant. So that does give me a little bit of flexibility on when I can work. But for the most part, I need to meet core hours in my office, interface with other engineers and designers. But the one thing that I do have going for me is I do well on little fleet. Um, So I... That's something my mom gave me because she's the same. I don't require a lot of sleep. So I've got two, I've got, additionally, I've got two kids, a, a one-year-old and a four-year-old. They're both boys and they are absolutely chaos. Um, <laughs> uh, I've got, you know, my, my beautiful wife. But, uh, you know, in order for me to find a balance in life and work and family and, you know, try to be the best dad that I can, I end up doing, like David said, a lot of midnight trail runs, checking cameras. I I ended up going in. There there were six different times from July through probably. I don't think once October came, I did any of the midnight runs. But from July to say mid-September, I did six different nights. I didn't sleep. Um, I I went in and I checked, you know, 10 to 15 cameras, um, which which took me all night, considering how spread out. how spread out they are and how thick the area was. But, uh, and then i I'd, I'd get out of the canyon. Um, I'd, uh, either run home and shower. Or if I was running late, i I kind of just wash my face in, in any one of the, the creeks there. There was a couple different trailheads that I used to approach the, the area, depending on where, depending on where he was and, or, or where I was checking the cameras. And anyway, so I, I to wash my face in the creek and have a change of clothes and I, uh, on a very needed stick of deodorant go into work <laughs> or I'd, I'd uh, go home and, and shower before I'd come in. But yeah, it was six different times I pulled a complete all nighter and probably another half dozen to a dozen times that I was out till midnight, 2 AM. So that, that's kind of what I would do is I'd check cameras at night and uh, try to glass during the day. And then once the hunt started, I was definitely trying to hunt during the day and check cameras at night or if I was, I just try not to disturb the area actually. So I was relying on my cameras. That I felt like, I felt more confident that if I was in the area and I bumped him at night, that it wouldn't be as harsh of a bump because he would have been up and active and feeding versus bumping a deer out of its bed can be kind of a catastrophic bump. Mm-hmm. That's the, the opinion I took. Um, I don't know how valid it was. Plus that just seemed to be when I had time. A lot of my close friends know that, that I'm a night owl and, and do well on, on little sleeps. If I had an advantage on this year, that's, that's what it was. Just that I was willing to, to do those night runs and that's kind of what I had to do in order to, that's what I have to do. I mean, that's, that's not something that I've just done on this year, but you know, tons of my hunting on the Wapatch front. I think that's probably how I've been. I've kept my, my little advantage is just the, the grind and the work ethic, checking cameras at night and, and just waking up really early. Um, it's what you got to do with work and a little family. So,
2: yep. I, so you have a really good point there. Too many guys, especially new hunters are screwing around in their area that they're going to hunt two weeks before the hunt and like pressuring the animals, you know, do that work beforehand, do that, you know, early summer, uh, I know in, you know, the Denver area, we can't get into the mountains because there's so much snow still. But, uh, you know, in Utah, you should be fine. Like, you know, put in the work early and then the last few weeks, sit back and glass from afar. Don't pressure them. Uh, that that stuff drives me crazy um, when I go into hunting area. And like, you know, two weeks ago, they're everywhere. And now they're not there n- anymore.
1: Yeah, that's, I thought I was going to kill this deer on the opener. I, I thought he was dead. First part of August, when he hit that... When you hit, I just thought I had him, finally had him patterned. And then, then all of a sudden I start seeing more guys at the trailhead, more, you know, obviously hunting trucks, because on the Wasatch Front there, there's a, you know, a huge diverse class of recreators and you got a lot of hunters who drive very specific vehicles and you've got trail runners, mountain bikers, um, all of the people use the trailhead, And, uh, but you can start to see, uh, trucks with hunting stickers and stuff starting that August time frame. And, Sure enough, I could start to see the the hunters show up and start doing their their preseason work, if you will, and I think it ended up bumping them out of this pattern. So I could, I, I I I agree, all of that work needs to be done beforehand, and you, you definitely don't want to be in your area pressuring up, throwing those deer off their patterns. That's why our, you know August 15th in Utah. Utah kind of goes on a floating cycle, so it's not always August 15th opener, but this year was the earliest that you can bow hunt deer in the cycle. It's an advantage because August 15th, the deer are deep in their summer patterns. I've, I've killed a couple of, so this is my third deer over 30 inches off the unit. I killed a, a 180, mid 180 class, 35 inch, 3x4 in 2015. And then last year I killed a whitetail frame. Monster monster frame buck. He ended up going pretty much right at 190. He was 34 inches wide. And then this this buck that I killed this year. Both of the both of those other deer I killed. Uh, the one in 2015 I killed on a year that the hunt started early. I killed him the Saturday after the opener, so a week after the opener. Um, he was still very much in the high country, very much in his summer pattern. Um, I killed him in the escape route. Um, that deer was uh, escaping some pressure in the basin, um, so he was still in the summer pattern. I knew what trails he liked to use. And then the deer last year, 2019, I killed the second day of the hunt, again in the summer pattern. Uh, he, he too, was getting a little pressure, and I knew what trail. I'd actually been on that deer that morning and decided not to take a 100-yard shot and was rewarded. I saw what trail he was using to get into the pine. that same day in the evening. The deer was working up and out of a basin because of some noise in the bottom of the basin and was on that same trail and cut him off and shot him. And so this deer.
2: Oh, I was going to say, that's another thing about the Wasatch Front is, you know, when people hunt it, be prepared. You've got to, you've got to know how to shoot. Uh, I've heard stories of guys taking hundred plus yard shots because you just can't get close. It's too thick. Uh, The deer are pressured for what, three, four months out of the year um yeah it's not easy
1: no it's not i've i've bow hunted every state touching utah except nevada and i've killed a buck and a bull in every state touching utah except nevada Nevada's really stingy with their tags but yeah I, I not to put the front on a pedestal but i i honestly feel it's the hardest unit i've ever hunted and i've heard a lot of people who who have hunted a lot of different units stay the same. That it's the hardest unit in the West, the most pressured unit in the West. It's it's crazy. And like you said, David, it's 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 impossible to even get close. So you have to be capable at shooting in extended ranges. Um, you know, I, I'm not a big advocate of taking 100 plus yard shots. Um, I've never killed an animal beyond 90 yards on the front. Um, that being said, I have killed an animal at 90. But it was a it was a controlled scenario. The deer was unaware of my presence, and just so everyone knows, I um, I'm a member of the Easton facility out by the Salt Lake International Airport. Uh, you can shoot indoors pretty much out to 80 yards and outdoors out to like 120. Um, it's a fairly costly membership, and I shoot there two to three times a week, either in the evenings or after my after work or during my lunch breaks. And then I blank bail in my garage so that I'm shooting at least five times a week, if not every night. A lot of people know and have seen me there at Easton, and I just try to be as accurate as I can. And I was practicing that intently throughout the throughout the hunt. Um, I shoot enough that uh, a lot of people really only touch their strings, you know, once every other season. I shoot enough that I, I need to reserve my bowstring. I can generally get a season out of my bowstring but I typically need to reserve all of the serving on my bowstring once in the summer um, towards July, or yeah, end of July time frame. I need to reserve the serving on my bowstrings. And I get handmade custom bowstrings from a top-notch guy here in Utah named Ken. Uh, and anyway, that just gives you an idea how much I shoot. But uh, I really am a big believer in in muscle muscle memory i actually don't feel like i'm the most skilled person like raw skilled born skilled person on the planet i've got a buddy named jaron who i always joke is he can pick up a you know he can pick up his bow after not shooting for a while and shoot pretty damn good i'm the type of guy that my skill is masochism my skill is i've got a grinding nature i've got i'm not born with any particular talent other than being able to grind and I tend to excel in things that I can develop muscle memory and, you know, grinding type sports. I was a wrestler, and you know, I enjoyed long distance running and stuff that I could grind through um, and just work hard, develop muscle memory, or just a grinding mentality. That's, that's the areas that I've kind of excelled in my life. Yes, yeah, shooting and staying consistent on your shot was is, has been very important. When I actually came down to get the shot on came down to came down to the wire and actually had my shot. I don't know if I could have defined a more stressful shot encounter, but honestly I'm I didn't have very much buck fever. I drew back my bow, settled my pin, and 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 I felt confident in the shot and I ended up ended up being a really steep shot. The mountains on the front are very steep. It was an eighty yard shot. It was hold for sixty five on the yardage. Um, if you do the trigonometry, it ends up being like a 35 to 40 degree slope. And uh, so that shot was well executed. I ended up hitting him in, in the heart, um, basically in the armpit on the near side. And it, the arrow exited out the the opposite side lung, about two-thirds up his body cavity. Um, he ended up dying within about two or three seconds. He, he did one big bound. Um, It looked like he tried to bound again, then somehow, like, died as he was bounding, and it was just kind of crazy. His his body turned, and I saw his feet go up in the air, and then I just saw nothing. And I heard my glasser, Ty Glenn, he was about a mile away, and I heard him erupt, because he watched the whole thing go down in the spotting scope. (laughs) It was a crazy... I, I still didn't believe it I was right there watching it all and I was like, where, where did he go? What, what, what is this? <laughs> he should be running off. What, what's, what's going on here? And I, you know, and I, and I'd seen him. I, I didn't see him like go down because he had bounced into a, a thicket, but I, I, it just was so, you know, that's, that, that's very uncommon to shoot a deer and he just drops dead like that. And, you know, I gave, I still gave it 30 minutes. And I, walk, I walked up to him, and he was just dead right there. No blood trailing. Wow. It was, I, I couldn't believe it. it. It was quite the way to end uh, just a, a grinder of a season. A lot of people know that I really love to hunt elk, um, and I lo- love to hunt out of state. So I, I had actually contemplated bailing on a couple of my out-of-state hunts, which I really love hunting out of state. I love, you know, Colorado. I love Wyoming, Arizona, um, hunted New Mexico a little bit on an odd ad hunt earlier last year and I just loved the diversity and I love hunting new places and I had contemplated giving up some of my out of state tags but considering that the deer were so elusive and so ghostly I just you know I said if I don't end up killing this deer and I give up you know my Colorado hunt or I give up my Arizona hunt I'm going to be pretty pissed and I figured that my best time to kill this deer was on the rut, so I'd set aside a lot of vacation PTO to hunt during that time, and felt a little bit more confident at that time, So I still I still did my my out of state hunt, uh, you know, planning planning a lot of days off for the for the rut, and like I said it ended up working out at the very last minute. So
0: so you mentioned you you like to hunt a lot of a lot of other states. Do you did your tactics or strategies change at all compared to when you're hunting the Wasatch Front because I mean, like David and, and I both hunted it, and what I experienced is you have to be super aggressive when you're hunting the f- the front country. Um, fr- fr- from the areas that I hunted, and I hunted with Isaac, and I hunted a little bit with David while I was there as well, um, we would see a deer, and it was a pretty good odds that, uh, I mean, we weren't super deep or anything, but it was pretty good odds that someone else had, had spotted that same deer, and they were also already going after it or... Um, if they were bedded, if the deer was bedded by a trail or something, you know, a, a runner or a biker was going to come across the trail and, and spook it. So, um, I've felt that you have to be pretty aggressive hunting the, the front country. But um, how do your tactics and strategies change when you're hunting out of state?
1: Yeah, they definitely uh, they definitely change, and they change a lot. The one thing that I've I've been a big proponent of, so I, I kind of define define hunting in two different ways: uh, a macro strategy and a micro strategy. Um, and what I mean by that is a macro strategy is would be like your quintessential Colorado or Wyoming high country basin where you can sit back, you know, your, your basin peaks are well above timberline, the basin itself is above timberline, and you can drop low in the basin and finally get into timber. And in those areas, the deer tend to bed above timberline, you know, below rocks, rock cliffs, um, maybe little patchy pine But they're areas that are conducive to long-range glassing, putting a deer to bed, and stocking in once he's in bed. For the most part, 90% of the time, maybe 95% of the time, you can throw that out the window on the Wasatch Front. We're just not quite high enough in elevation. We've got a couple areas that the basin is in timberline and the peaks are above timberline. But the deer, for whatever reason here on the Wasatch Front, will feed up high and they'll drop down into the thick timber to bed. Pretty much all over the place. There, there are a couple exceptions to that in, in a couple areas, but those areas do tend to get a lot of pressure. Um, so yeah, my, my tactics very much change. On the Wasatch front, I, I try to stay macro. The last part of the scouting season, you know, not being in pressuring the animals in the areas I want to hunt. But once the hunt comes around, I try to, I try to have a more, I try to incorporate more micro strategies. And what I mean by that are, You know, focusing or sitting, um, in ambush in areas, um, escape routes. If, if I know the deer is going to get a lot of pressure or just trying to sit in areas where the wind is consistent and, um, where, where I've seen the deer, where there's high deer activity. So there's, there's been a lot of times that I go up on the Wasatch front and I'm sure David can see, can see this, like, August, September time frame, and guys will sit back and stay on a peak and glass, and glass, and glass, and glass, and glass. And I don't know how many times they do that, and they don't ever go on stock. I mean, it's it's just, oh, look, there's a great deer, and you glass him up in the morning, and then he goes and beds in a square mile of timber. And it's like, okay, where's that deer going to go? And you have no idea where he's going to emerge. And I just, I got sick and tired of doing that on the Wasatch Front, because it was just hike up, go and Um, and and one thing I should probably point out of those 47 days that I said that I was up, they they weren't full days. Um, I ended up taking like seven, I ended up doing between weekends and days off and the Thanksgiving holiday, I ended up doing 17 full days in, in November. But the time before that, if it wasn't a weekend, I was just up for a few hours in the morning and then I'd get down to go to work. So the, the benefit of my job is, as long as I'm there to interface with other engineers during core hours, um, call it 9:30, 10 o'clock to 3 o'clock, I can end up picking up the rest of my work at night. Um, and I, that's kind of where I hit my stride anyway, is, is working at night. So I, I, I should have said that earlier when I said 47 days um, before November. A lot of those were were quick morning hunts or you know quick lasting sessions. Um, so, th- so that's kind of how I tackle the Wasatch Front is try to put myself in ambush situations, um, areas with consistent wind. Um, I've, I've, I've killed I I've killed a 164 point out of a tree stand. That's the only buck i killed out of a tree stand. But um, two other bucks, those two other big bucks that I killed, the 180 and 190 buck, were both killed um, off of trails knowing they're a- um, in an ambush type situation um Colorado like I said or, or Wyoming I tend to do more of a macro strategy where I'm I'm looking over a lot of country trying to put animals to bed and stocking in um you can get away with that on I hunted the OTC I killed a pretty heavy nice three by three with good eye guards on the Arizona OTC desert hunt um there you can do the same thing Glass long range and put animals to bed and stock in. We, uh, I did that on an odd ad hunt in Mexico, glass long range. That was rifle. So, yeah, so if you, you could actually imagine hunting deer on the Wasatch front is like hunting elk elsewhere. Well, they're feed high, bed low, um, but these deer aren't vocal. So it, a lot of the time you go up and you don't even see animals. Um, but, uh, I figure if I'm, if I'm in a better micro strategy, so the, the chances of me seeing the deer are a little bit lower because I'm not, you know, at some big glassing point, but if the deer does come into the area, then, then I've got the good chance of killing him. Um, so that's, that, that's, that's kind of how it, it, it divides up for me. I just look at the terrain. What are the usable features? You know, what, what makes it hunt difficult? What makes a hunt easier? And I kind of dissect it that way. And I don't try to force something that isn't there. I don't try to force us, you know, uh, put a deer-to-bed hunt tactic in an area that's just too thick. It's not going to work, and you're going to end up spending a lot of energy climbing to that peak and and glassing, and you're going to glass and glass, and you're going to see them, but you're never going to put yourself in a hunting situation. The one thing that I can't emphasize enough, and I I know both of you guys are killers, both of you guys know this, the wind is so important. Don't force the wind. I mean, it's just, it's one of those things that it, the deer don't even need to be that pressured you could be in remote Colorado where i've questioned if some of the deer i've hunted in Colorado have even seen a person more than five times in their life and you can't even get a you can't even get away with wind then like the the wind is just just don't force the wind that that's david can david knows this because he's hunted the front a lot but people will just hunters specifically new hunters will just Try to force situations and just hope and pray that things will work out. You're never going to fool a deer's nose, and you're just going to waste energy.
0: Yeah, I definitely noticed that when I was hunting there. Uh, I was hunting with Isaac. and We had spotted some a buck chasing some does or kind of, not really chasing, but kind of rutting up some does and, and uh, circling around them and stuff. And sure enough, there were some hunters that were walking directly at them with the wind and uh yeah those 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 (laughs) got out of there immediately we were just like wow that was that was interesting but uh but um last time you're on you kind of talked about your arrow setup and this is one thing i wanted to touch on because um i saw that you posted about it the other day as well you hunt with two different arrow setups in the same bow and you have do you have two different sight tapes or kind of go over that and why you do it
1: okay yeah so um yeah, so I, I'm an engineer. I'm a I'm a geek. I'm a nerd. I'm a super detail freak. And in 2013, I started bow hunting. I've rifle hunted all my life, kind of casually in Utah, and Wyoming. Um, but I'm the type of person that goes head over hills. So although in 2013 I started bow hunting, I'd never even touched a compound bow before that. I went head over hills. I think I used a Pro Shop for the first two years, but then after that, I had literally obtained every piece of equipment a Pro Shop has. Press by Aero saw, you know, all sorts of levels. And, and I do all of that at home. You know, I have a, um, paper tuner, big blank veil at home. So I, yeah, so I, so I do two things. I'm very consistent on my shooting. I could, conti- I constantly make sure my bow's in tune because, uh, bows do go out of tune. Um, and you need to, and you need to stay on top of that. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I, so I, to answer your question, Frank, I do shoot two arrows out of my bow. And the reason for that is, I, I subscribe to both strategies. Um, I like a really, in all, you know, if I can, can force the issue, I want to take every shot 50, 60 yards and below, and I want to use a fixed blade with, uh, on a really heavy arrow. 650 grains. I found that with a stout fixed blade, um, like an Iron Will, I really like the Iron Will uh, fixed blade, the solid, on a 650-grain arrow, shooting out of an 80-pound compound bow, um, that I can pretty much take any shot angle that I want. Probably wouldn't take a straight-up ass shot, but um, quartering two, frontal, um, I've breached... The meaty, thick part of an elk shoulder on a bull in Arizona, uh, on one of those late archery tags a couple of years ago with this arrow. And from that, from that point moving forward, I was like, man, if you, if you, if you can take, I do a lot of hunting by myself. And if you can take quartering two shots and breach that front shoulder, that's just, that's just amazing. That opens, it's going to open up the world. So, so that, that's kind of how, that arrow came to be was that Arizona hunt. I'd actually built that arrow specifically for that hunt. But that arrow suffers in that the trajectory beyond like sixty yards just sucks. Like if I'm two yards off on on ranging or if the animal steps or you know, some you know, even the high end rangefinders probably are only accurate to plus or minus a yard out to eighty yards and a yard or two at eighty yards with that that 650 grain arrow, that, that, that can be many inches vertically on an animal and put you in or, in or out of the kill zone. So the flip side of that, taking shots beyond 60, 60, 70 yards, I like, I like a lighter arrow with a mechanical on them so that I've, I've got more margin of error on my, my ranging. Kind of funny that you'd brought this up, Frank, because I had the same conversation with, uh, I call him Iron Will Bill uh bill the owner of Iron Will and you know I was, I was telling he wanted to he called me up and wanted to hear the story on my buck and we were kind of having this this uh conversation about fixed blade versus uh, mechanical and like I said I I would I would have loved nothing more to to shove a uh Iron Will through this buck's um you know both his lungs but the situation was a longer shot um it was in a thick area a um, lot of a lot of Asp, a lot of uh, low hanging aspen branches and I needed a flat shooting arrow. Uh, this arrow, this flat shooting arrow of mine is, it goes 310 feet per second. It was 425 grains. Uh, and I tip it with a, a 1.5 inch sever. Uh, I really like the Ulmer edge before the, the sever and, and, the sever came out and made improvements to it. So I, I really like that broadhead. So how I, how I do this is, like Frank had mentioned, if you can work through the tuning, so you can play with different spine arrows, and you can play with front of center weight. Um, so that's exactly what I do. Is uh, my heavy arrow? I use a, a stiffer spine, and I really like Iron Will um, the Iron Will insert and collar system. I've been a big believer in that. I've I've used those types of, types of inserts with collars since 2016. Um, I like the the inner the the hidden insert because it it, it directly aligns the, the broadhead to the shaft and then the collars that iron will makes makes, makes the system very, very strong. Um, so the other be- beauty of that is if you're trying to boost the weight of your arrow without weakening your spine, inserting that weight up into the shaft instead of having all the weight out front on the arrow, adds weight to your arrow without really weakening the spine, if that makes sense. Um, So I've got, on my heavy arrow, I've got two 100 grain of the, the, the micro one or see 0.166 diameter inserts from iron will. So I've got like the first six, seven inches of my arrow is all metal core. It's all, it's all insert. Um, so that decreases the flexible range of the arrow, which increases the, the spine. And then, uh, On my light arrow, so I'll I'll paper tune bare shafts, starting with a long arrow on both on both uh, arrows, and I'll cut a quarter inch off at a time until I can get both arrows to tune um, out of the out of the same rest position. You know, left and right tears. I'm trying to completely avoid knock low tears. I'm trying to completely avoid Um, knock knock high tears. Don't don't worry me that much. the, the knock end of the arrow coming out a little high does not worry me at all. Um, so that's kind of what I'm looking for when I'm tuning the arrows. Um, if I can get them complete, if I could completely eliminate the left and right tears, and and if one arrow has a slight knock, knock high tear, I'm not, I'm not worried about that. I try to tune such that the fixed blade arrow, the heavy arrow is perfect, and if the the light arrow is coming out a little knock high, that's, that's fine. And then I run two different sight tapes. So on my black gold sight, the the front sight, I, I, I shoot a three pin. I know I, I've heard a lot of people say that they shoot a single pin more accurately, but I've been in so many jump hunting circumstances that I like a three pin. So my my light arrow, the pins are 30, 40, 50. And then the sight tape on the conventional sight tape location is for that arrow. On the back side of that, on the black gold, there's a little screw hole that I use as my indicator pin and I paste uh, a pretty thin strip for a sight tape for my heavy arrow on the backside of the, the black gold. My Instagram actually has, I think either a saved video or if you look back on my post, kind of some pictures of how I set this up and I've had this conversation. I think when I sh- when I did a bunch of posts on this, I think I got 40 or 50 direct messages asking more about it. So it was fairly popular topic. Um, so I post that on the back, but then the, the key is knowing what ranges those three pins are with my heavy arrow. And it turns out that it's pretty much for my setup, it was pretty much 20 for the, the 30 yard pin, It's 20 for the heavy arrow. And then it was like 29, pretty much close to 30 on the 40 yard pin. And then the 50 yard pin it started to drop. It was more like 36 or 37. So my sight tape for My heavy arrow was based off of that bottom 10 at 37 yards, and it just went out from there. So I carry both of those arrows in my quiver, and since both are tuned, the sight take takes care of any gravity effects that are different, and I've got the benefit of both worlds. Um, I feel like I have the world's best arrow. I like the gold tip. Uh, I like the micro diameter arrows. I personally shoot the gold tip pierce um, tours. Easton, Easton's easton got something comparable. Most manu- arrow manufacturers have those denser core micro-diameter arrows. I really like those with the iron wheel uh, insert system with the collars. Um, so that's, uh, that's kind of what I do. I've got the benefit of both worlds. I'm ultimately forgiving on close-range shots. I've even noticed that with an arrow that heavy, uh, you can punch it through brush and still kill. I killed a bull in Idaho. Uh, last year, and I punched it through a little bit of brush with an iron wheel on that heavy arrow, and it still killed. Shot angle is more forgiving, but then, you know, the weakness of that arrow, like i had mentioned, is trajectory, um, and not, it's not very forgiving on range accuracy out beyond, say, 50 yards. And then comes the lighter arrow, where I'm a big proponent of, of range forgiveness, um, because the, I think everyone's been in a situation where they range a deer, they slide their slider, and then the deer moves. Uh, being able to take that shot right then is, I think, ultimately important, especially if you're hunting ambush situations. It may not be as important if you're in Colorado shooting a bedded buck or a buck that stood up, but if you're in an ambush situation and they're moving, I think that range forgiveness is, is very important, and that's why I have that light arrow. You know that that lighter. I'm I'm making sure that I'm I'm not hitting the front shoulder, so I'm I'm maybe holding a little back, maybe holding for a uh, more of a double lung shot than I am, uh, you know, a golden triangle shot. But uh, yeah, I think that range forgiveness is vitally important. I think it's something that a lot of people forget. Um, if you get a heavy arrow, just be aware that 60, 70, 80 yards, you make a two yard error judgment on the range, or if the animal moves that could push you outside of the kill zone.
2: I know this is on my mind. Uh, once you kill a giant deer, there's no going backwards, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. So what's, what's in the future? Are you going to just switch over to like, I don't know, moose?
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Moose tags were drawable, right? Um, no, man, I, I'm, it's funny that you say that cause I've killed three really good bucks here on the front, but um, no, man, I'm, I'm not, I'm not the biggest, you know, pure trophy hunter. Uh, this year, it's getting exceedingly hard to draw tags in Utah as it is everywhere. I think, for whatever reason, people are saying that the number of hunters are decreasing. That's probably true, but it seems like hunters are just getting more hardcore and drawing out of state tags and, anyway, so it's getting harder to draw tags. So I actually put in for the dedicated hunter program in Utah last year. Last year was my first year on it, which means that the state gives me two tags in three years. So I can hunt all three years, but I can only kill two animals. So it's kind of destiny or whatever. It, it, it turned out to be pretty lucky for me that I was hunting this year on my very first year dedicated. Which mean and then the, the benefit of dedicated is you can hunt with a, a rifle and muzzleloader. That does me really no good in the area that I hunt because it's not a rifle or muzzleloader huntable area. It's our tree only. So I really did this dedicated program. It cost a little bit more money uh, just to secure two tags in three years because it's getting harder to draw tags. So my mentality was first year I dedicated, if I hold out for a monster buck and I don't end up killing him, then I hunted that year and I've kind of burned that year, that that year that I can't kill an animal in the front, but I still hunted. So, you know, I, I live for the hunt. Um, I've got a really stressful job, stressful family situation with my young kids. I live to be out there hunting, um, even if it's just my morning hunt and having a year go by that I'm not out pursuing deer with my bow in my backyard just, just, just seemed to pain me. So I figured in my head that if, if I'm super picky that first year, then I could, uh, that I could, um, then I could still be hunting all three years. Um, So now the the situation kind of progresses to the second year. Now I've I've got one tag left on my dedicating. I've got two years still enrolled in the program. So yeah, I need to be picky again. But I guess what I'm saying is, if it wasn't for that scenario, you know, the the next year I kill is certainly not going to be 250 inches likely. But uh, maybe I'm up. Maybe I'm going to be Maybe I'm being pessimistic here. But you know, I'm just looking for maturity. I posted on my feed just the other day, actually, um, in 2018, which is the first year that I actually, after 2013, I basically went head over heels for archery, and I didn't, and um, I didn't really pick up a rifle. Um, I did a couple of times in Wyoming, um, but it was just kind of like a weekend hunt after a 10-day archery hunt. I picked up the rifle to just go fill my tag. But in 2018, I picked up. A rifle tag with the intent to hunt with the rifle. And that was the first tag that I had bought with the intent of hunting with the rifle. And I went up. It was a five day hunt. I ended up killing a, what I, what I think is nine. I, unfortunately, I never saved the jaw, but its teeth were pretty much gone. I killed a, a, a monster Forcasaurus, 16, 17 inch G2s, heavy bladed. Uh, just a really square face, Roman nose, really old deer. I posted this on my story the other day, and I love that deer. In fact, I'm down here in my man cave, and I'm looking at that deer right now, and he is one of the smallest deer score-wise that I've ever killed, but he's got one of his main beans, kind of corkscrews, got funky little eye guards, and he's one of the coolest deer I've ever killed. And that hunt just tested me because it was cold. There was a polar vortex. It was a, a backpack rifle hunt. It was basically applying my archery mentality to a rifle hunt. And that hunt was just, that hunt was just badass. And I killed a super old animal. So that's, that's kind of what I'm looking for. Um, you know, th- this coming year, I want to find a big old mature animal. Um, you know, size, it, I would it would be great if I could find a, a 190 type buck. You know, th- those are becoming way few and far between, even working extremely diff- hard to find them. So I'm just looking for for maturity. Elk, elk, it's a little different story because we we are an elk-eating family. We don't buy beef. Um, mule deer, I tend to make jerky out of all my mule deer because my wife doesn't necessarily care for the flavor, but elk, uh, elk-wise, I just want to kill an elk. I want to kill an elk every year, uh, whether that's, you know... Early in the season, I'd love to kill, you know, a big, a big bull, but, uh, push come to shove. I want to kill an elk every year for the, for the meat. The mule deer, I can see myself eating a few more tags moving forward. Um, just looking for that, that mature animal, not necessarily a, a a score related to them, but, uh, but just maturity. My wife jokes with me that I'm running out of space in our house. Um, my big, my big deer I put up I shoulder mount and I put in our living room, and my wife basically told me no more room up there, and my man cave down here. I've got a wall with like 10, 15 euro mounts and a deer that I've killed over the years, smaller deer, 1 140 to 160 type bucks, and so so just the combination of that with the meat and the the animals that I that I have been fortunate enough to take. I think moving forward, I may be a little bit more picky on mule deer, but that's not to say that I'm holding out for it. Never go back and I'm, I'm holding out for a 250-inch year. That, that's definitely <laughs> not the case.
0: Well, man, it's, uh, it's been awesome having you on. It's been about an hour now. Um, is there anything else you wanted to touch on before we, we let you uh, let you get back to work or get back to uh, whatever crazy mule deer madness you got going on?
1: <laughs> no, um, the madness is my kids are gonna wake up here here shortly. But no, I just wanted to, to say thanks to you, Frank and David and and Aaron. kafaro has been really good to me. Um, I love your guys' products. You know, from the 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 pack to the even the 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 puffy pants that you guys just came out with. I personally was I personally was not using my pair of puffy pants. My my I gave them to my my uh, my buddy who was glassing for me that day day tie. Uh, so he, so he was just you know, very st- stationary and was using those, but your guys' pack, the shelters, I'm a big believer in that sawtooth and the stove and, you know, hunting the front, I don't think there is a, such a demand on your gear because m- nine times out of 10, you're coming down to your house at night and and whatnot, but I've been on some backpack hunts, that Idaho rifle hunt that I was talking about, or even some of the Colorado or Wyoming adventures where you're really dependent on your gear and that sawtooth is like a shining beacon of of hope, going back to a nice warm stove where you can dry things out and and just your packs. I've I've done a number of solo adventures packing off mule deer. That that hunt in particular in Idaho, carrying um, the sawtooth, the shelter, um, full on winter gear. It was it was literally below zero at night with a stiff north wind because the polar vortex had come down. When I got off the mountain I I weighed that pack with our scale and it was 136 pounds and I'm not gonna lie it sucked it was like four miles in mostly downhill but it was slick and wet but that that's not doable with any other pack in my opinion I mean it still hurt but it was doable and you guys just make fantastic gear and and um, you, you guys are doing a great thing I love the the informational stuff that I try to do a lot of the same stuff I I try to promote and and share information, and a lot of guys follow me because I I do get technical, and I try to share a lot of that technicality, Um, and that's one thing I love about Aaron. I've learned a lot from him, from you, Frank, your guys' platform. Um, So keep doing what you're doing, making badass gear, and, and getting people up the learning curve faster.
0: Awesome, man. Yeah, we appreciate the kind words, and um, yeah, you as well. You, you definitely have a lot of, of great information, and we're happy to have you on whenever we can.
1: The other thing I kind of want to bring up is killing this buck was definitely a, a team effort. I had um, my my buddy, Jaron Danzi. he ran trail cameras with me all fall, um, summer and fall. He had several late nights, Probably nice that he didn't even get sleep checking cameras with me and going up and checking cameras independent of me. And then uh, my other buddy, Luke, who I'd mentioned, who was also hunting the deer in 17, he didn't draw a deer tag this year. And it's just a mule deer nut. He took the entire week of Thanksgiving off to help me. Super selfless guy, and I'm uh, all the time that he put in to help me, we almost killed the deer together several times. Um, with him glassing for me I had the buck under 50 yards i had drawn on the buck several different times uh, Him, he and I glassing and, and hunting together it, it, he, he was just amazing and then uh, big shout to Ty Glenn who uh, really uh, I don't know if I would have killed this deer without him um, Ty and I were hunting together um, there was some competition on the deer and Martin and Devin uh, are, are, are lethal and we're hunting the deer and almost got him killed and we we found ourselves in a good opportunity that last day and and Ty made a miraculous spot towards the the end of the day after some deer had kind of screwed up our play a different buck had come in and pushed out the does and Ty uh, right before last light Ty made a miraculous spot which allowed me to make a, a really aggressive stalk to cut the distance um, quickly and once I got in the red zone I kind of slowed things up and navigated the crunchy snow but again I, I don't think I would have killed this deer without the help of those three guys and scouting and their glassing efforts and um, trying to pick that mountainside apart together it was it was quite the chore so thanks so much guys and can't say enough about good hunting partners they're they're instrumental to success on these big deer
2: Right on. Cool, cool. Yeah, it's definitely a, a team effort when you get something like this. So, yeah,
0: good job, guys. Uh, I'm sure you'll never forget all the help you got.
1: No, never will. That, those guys, are. I'm in, I'm in their debt. But, um,
0: yeah, if you uh, if you guys have a chance, check out James on Instagram. Like David said in the beginning, it's uh, Yates in the backcountry. Um, check out all of his cool hunting adventures and stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, man, thanks again for coming on, and, and we'll
1: talk to you later. Cool. Thanks for the invite, guys. Thanks, David. Yep. Take care, man. Nice chatting. Yep. See yeah.